This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering And sacrifice to God. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, again, this is our 11th sermon in the Seeing and Displaying Jesus series. And I don't have a lot of time uh, this morning to give a lot of introduction to or a lot of summary uh, of the series so far. I will simply say this in the framework of the visual that's going to be on the screen uh, behind me, we're we're, we're in the mini series within the series on uh, displaying Jesus through. A life of love. If you look at the blue box on the bottom right-hand corner of the visual, you can see that we're describing the life of love that Christians live as they respond to the love they receive in Jesus and in the gospel. Uh, two weeks ago, we said that the fundamental way in which Christians display Jesus is through a life of love, a life of sacrifice, a life of service. In the Bible, love is an orientation on relationships. Love is a perspective on relationships wherein I don't seek to use you for my benefit. I seek to be useful to you, even at my own expense. Uh, Said differently, uh, love in the Bible is the stewardship of our resources for the blessings of other people. It's to take whatever resources we have and to engage them for the benefit and the blessing of of others. As we see Jesus, as we behold the gospel, number two in our visual, we increasingly see how blessed we are by God's grace, by, God, by this divine and all-powerful and all-knowing God. And as we realize how blessed we are, it empowers us and allows us to move into our life, not seeking our own blessing, but seeking the blessing of others. Last week, we looked at verses 25, 29, and 30 in Ephesians chapter 4, and we talked about words. We talked about our ability to speak, and we said that it's a powerful, words are a powerful resource, a resource that we steward for the blessing of other people. Uh, This week, we're considering our emotions, uh, verse 26, 27, 31, and 32, again in Ephesians 4. And we're going to consider this other very powerful resource that we steward uh, for other people in this life of love that we live in the gospel. And again, just by way of reminder, we're going to cover the topic of work when we look at the idea of calling. Work is uh, alluded to, in fact, referenced directly by Paul 
in verse 28. Now, before I jump into uh, the sermon, I want to say this. You may be wondering why the life of love in this seeing and displaying Jesus framework, you may be wondering why the life of love doesn't include deeds. I mean, think about it. We've always heard, in short, that the call of the Christian is to love in word and deed. If you think about it for a second, if you just look at Jesus' life, we just entered into the Gospel of Mark and and City Bible reading. We're about to read of his life, and Jesus is constantly teaching and healing. He is constantly preaching and providing. And so why have I categorized the life of love as words, emotions, and calling, and not words and deeds and calling? This is why. Emotions are at the core of the ongoing Christ-like life of mercy and justice. Of course, the life of love in the Bible is a life that includes extravagant mercy and radical justice. But at a deeper level, at the level of sourcing, when it comes to mercy and justice, if we want to act like Jesus acted, we have to feel how Jesus felt. And so I want to get at the deeper issue when it comes to deeds by talking about emotions. I'm going to bring this up multiple times in the sermon. We're going to come back to this idea that if we want to act like Jesus acted, we have to first feel like Jesus felt. So I want to think about the life of emotions in and through, uh, uh, a life of love, excuse me, in and through emotions, and I want to think about it this way. I want to think about the call to emotional generosity. I want to think about two examples of emotional generosity and two steps towards emotional generosity. Okay, so first, the call to emotional generosity. All I want to do in this point is call our attention to the fact that the Bible commands us to steward our emotions, to invest into other people the emotional capital that we have. I want us to see that just like our words and just like our money and just like our time and just like our education and just like our minds, the Bible calls us to see our emotions as a resource that we can be generous with. A resource to not just be used on ourselves and our own lives, but a resource to use for the benefit of other people. Listen to what Paul says. In fact, what Paul commands in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. This is going to be on the screen behind me. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Paul is not talking about a perfunctory ritualism here. He's not talking about behaviors. In verse 1 of Romans 12, Paul is saying, I want you to live a life of sacrifice in response to the sacrifice Jesus made for you at the cross. In verse 9, Paul is saying in Romans 12, let love be genuine. So sacrifice is love. He says, let it be sincere. Let it be authentic. Let it be without hypocrisy. In verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection, emotion, feelings, So sacrifice is love, and love includes the sacrificial use of emotions. And emotions, verse 15, looks like this. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. Just like our words and our money and our time and our education and our minds, the Bible calls us to see our emotions as a resource to be generous with. In the second point, we're going to look extensively at the concept of tenderheartedness. It's in verse 32 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. But for now, just hear this. Peter commands his readers to the exact same thing in 1 Peter 3.8. And in that same verse, Peter rattles off a synonym of tenderheartedness. We'll put it on the screen behind us. Peter calls for sympathy. 
Sympathy is the English of the Greek uh, uh, sympathes. There are some Greek and English words that's just obvious how they go together. Sympathes, sum, thing, pathes, pathos, feelings, emotions. My emotional life is not just about me, it's about us. My emotional life is not just about my experience of my life, it's about my experience of your life. The Apostle John models this in 3 John. We read it in CBR this week. He writes this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, and he's talking about spiritual children and most likely churches, I have no uh, greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. John says, my deepest gladness has nothing to do with my life. My deepest gladness is wrapped up in the growth and the life of other people. The Apostle Paul models emotional generosity. He's writing about the hardships in his life as an apostle. In 2 Corinthians 11, he talks about beatings and imprisonments and the dreaded 40 lashes minus one. And he's writing about these and he concludes and he says, apart from these or above these other things like beatings and imprisonments and starvation and, and being adrift at sea. He said, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Not on me is the anxiety of what's going to happen next, because something's going to happen next. But on me is this pressure, this anxiety for these baby Christians and these newborn churches. So, so first, the call to emotional generosity. The Bible is calling me to consider my feelings and my affections and my emotions as a resource that I steward for the benefit of others. Not just a resource that I'm going to invest in myself and in my life. Second, two, two examples of emotional generosity. And again, we're going we're to consider the verses in Ephesians 4 that teach us how to walk in love in regards to our emotions. We covered words last week. We're going to talk about calling and work in the weeks to come. But two examples of emotional generosity. Look at verse 26. This is on, on your worship folder insert. Paul commands us to be angry. In verse 32, Paul commands us to be tenderhearted. Two examples of emotional generosity. Let's start with tenderhearted. Okay, the Greek word for tenderhearted literally means this, soft bowels. Jokes will abound. Twitter will be a fire. Soft bowels. In the Greco-Roman world, the bowels, the entrails, the guts, they were the part of the human anatomy that that culture spoke figuratively of in regards to the place that housed their deepest feelings and emotions. In the way that we figuratively talk about the heart, they talked about the bowels. The Greek word is splagnon. Sounds like guts. Entrails. Paul commands here that we give one another literally soft bowels. Or in our vernacular, tender hearts. In our text, tenderheartedness is an adjective in the Greek, but 12 times in the New Testament, this Greek root is used as a verb. 12 times, this word is turned into an action verb. In all 12 instances, every time this word is a verb, Jesus, or the Jesus figure in a parable, is the subject doing the action. And so if we want to know what does it mean to be soft-bowed, we can look at these episodes in Jesus' life where Jesus is said to either have compassion or be moved with pity. In every instance, every time, Jesus is around someone who's hurting, 
around someone in distress, around someone in danger. And every time he moves in and he does something physical and merciful. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus comes in contact with two blind men who are being marginalized, controlled, and oppressed by the crowds. Jesus, quote, in pity, soft-bowed, touched their eyes, and they immediately received sight. Jesus in Matthew 15 realizes that the crowd, they haven't eaten in three days, and he realizes that if they travel in the wilderness, they're going to die. He, quote, had compassion, soft-bowed, and fed them, meeting their need. In Luke 7, Jesus is traveling and he's about to enter the sleepy town of Nain and there's a funeral procession of the only son of a widow. Jesus, soft-bowed, comforted her and raised her son to life. If you read, if you read Mark chapter 1 on Friday, if you're a part of the CBR initiative, you read in verse 40 of a leper coming up to Jesus, kneeling down in front of him, begging him for healing. The leper says to him, if you will, if you wish, if you desire, if you want, you can. You are able. You can make me clean. Jesus, verse 41, moved with pity. Again, same Greek root as as tenderheartedness. Moved with pity, stretched out his hand, touched him and said, I want, I desire, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy leaves him. Our first example of emotional generosity from Ephesians 4 is tenderheartedness. It's compassion. It's to have our deepest affections open to and impacted by others and whatever they're experiencing. Tenderhearted is to be emotionally available to those who are hurting, to those who are in distress, to those who are in danger. Now think back to what I said in the introduction. If we don't see acts of mercy in our lives, our deepest problem is not a lack of money, It is not a lack of time. It is not not a lack of any other resource. It's a lack of emotion. More accurately, it's a lack of compassion. Before we can act like Jesus acted, we have to feel what Jesus felt. Think about our call to worship from 1 John 3. What's the deeper issue when someone doesn't share their worldly goods with a brother in need? John says that in that case, we've, quote, closed our hearts are bows against the one in need. John says that we have closed off our bowels. We've closed off the deepest place of our affections and our emotions. Whenever we have the world's goods, see a brother or sister in need and don't take care of it. The deepest issue is not a lack of resources in terms of goods or opportunity or time. It's a lack of compassion. It's a lack of emotional generosity. It's the using of our emotions for ourselves and not other people. The second example of emotional generosity in Ephesians 4 is surprisingly anger. Look look at verse 26. This will be on the screen, but it's also in your worship folder insert. Paul says, be angry, command, and do not sin, command. If you look at verse 26 and verse 31 together, you can see that Paul is, in fact, commanding us to be angry. But he's commanding us to be angry never in a self-centered, self-promoting, self-advancing way. Verse 26 doesn't say, in your anger, don't sin. As if uh, when we feel anger, we shouldn't give in to it and sin because of it. 
It's not in your anger, don't sin, as if anger is some sort of temptation to other sins. While anger can lead to other sins, verse 26 commands us to be angry in a non-sinful way. In fact, verse 26 is going to teach us, and we're going to see this in a moment, it's going to teach us that there are certain situations in life where when we're not angry, we're sinning. First, I want to define sinful anger by looking at verse 31. This is going to actually help us understand what righteous anger looks like. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And so if you look at 26 and 31, you can see that Paul commands anger and then he forbids anger in the very same passage. He's, he's asking us for, for some nuanced thinking. He's asking us to press into the passage and into life and give it some thought. Anger, verse 31, is wrong when it feeds the desire to pay someone back or to hurt someone who's hurt us. We know that this is the anger that Paul is talking about because of the other words he puts in verse 31. Look, look at them with me. Bitterness or spite is a desire to hurt someone. Wrath is very simply a desire for revenge. Slander uh, in the Greek is any speech, but usually false speech that is spoken with the intent to hurt. Malice is ill will and the desire to injure someone because they injured you. So in verse 26, when Paul says, be angry and do not sin, he may in part be saying, don't let anger drive you to revenge. But commentators will tell you, he, he is saying far more than that. He's commanding anger. Again, this is where the life of Jesus can be incredibly helpful to us. Think about it. The Bible is clear that Jesus lived a sinful and per, a sinful, that was, can we cut that from the tape? The Bible clearly states that Jesus lived a sinless, a perfect, a beautiful, and a righteous life. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says he knew no sin. In John, uh, the gospel writer says that he was the spotless lamb of God who could die the sacrificial death that we all deserve. And so when we read uh, of Jesus being angry uh, in the four Gospels, we're reading of a time uh, where it's right to be angry. We're reading of a time where Jesus is obeying, in a sense, Paul's command of being angry and not sinning. We're told of three times in the Gospel narratives of Jesus being angry. In all three instances, Jesus got angry when the powerful were objectifying oppressing and marginalizing anyone weaker than them. In Mark 10, we read of Jesus being indignant. It's a word somewhere between irritated and angry in the English. He was indignant when he saw his disciples rebuking and trying to keep moms and little children away from him. The disciples, like their culture, had decided that, that, uh, that these uh, moms and these children, that they were not worth Jesus' time, that they were not as valuable to his ministry as other people. And when Jesus realizes what's going on, when he sees the powerful controlling and oppressing and not blessing the weak, he gets irritated, indignant, angry. And he lets his anger motivate him to rectify the situation. The disciples are taught, the parents are included, the babies receive the rightful blessing of the kingdom of God. 
In Mark 3, Jesus got angry with the the religious professionals of his day who used a man with a withered hand as a test case scenario, as a trap for Jesus. The Pharisees thought that it was wrong to heal on the Sabbath because their rules had become more important than people. And Mark says that Jesus, after assessing the situation, he got angry. But Mark also says, this is fascinating, he says that that Jesus was deeply grieved. He, He was deeply saddened. At what? At the Pharisees' quote, hardness of bowels. And so this man should have experienced tenderheartedness. This man should have experienced help. This man should have been rescued from what was ailing him, but he didn't. And in fact, the opposite, he was used. And that made Jesus angry. Further, Jesus' anger compelled him to do what was right, even at great danger to himself. Jesus, in front of his enemies, heals the man. And it says in Mark and in Luke and in Matthew that the the Pharisees went out and they they decided with the Herodians how to devise a plan that they might destroy Jesus. He could have pulled the man aside. He could have waited till the next day. But in anger, he writes the wrong. Do you know when Jesus was the angriest? Or, or better yet, we don't really know when he's the angriest. Do you know when the Bible says he was most angry? If you're thinking the cleansing of the temple, that's not the case. That may be true, but the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what emotion uh, he was experiencing at that time. I would guess that the cleansing of the temple was a controlled rage. That's just my guess. I'm with you. People are being oppressed. Outsiders are being marginalized. The gracious God is not being experienced by people without power. Jesus cleanses the temple. He turns over the tables. He teaches. He provides. He writes the wrong. But according to the Bible, where it specifically states that Jesus was the most angry at his friend Lazarus's funeral when his other friend Mary is weeping. John says in the ESV, that Jesus was, quote, deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled or agitated. The English, deeply moved in his spirit, is the Greek to snort with anger. Nostrils flaring. He was snorting mad. Why? Because his good friend died. Because his good friend was weeping. (laughs) Because this is not how things are supposed to be. Who was Jesus outraged with? Lazarus for dying? Mary for weeping? No, it says he wept with her. Who's he mad at? Satan. He's mad at death. He's mad at his ultimate enemy. He's mad at the ultimate oppressor and dehumanizer of mankind. He's snorting mad. But in his rage... He teaches Martha. He weeps with Mary. And he calls Lazarus out of the grave. In his mind, knowing that he would go into a grave to pay for it. That's when Jesus was the most angry. When Paul writes in verses 26 and 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. He may in part be saying, don't let your anger turn into business, uh, uh, bitterness. But, but he, he's at least saying, when angry over injustice and oppression, do something. 
He may in part be saying, don't let the devil buy up space in your heart through bitterness. But he's at least saying, don't let the devil keep in oppressive darkness those parts of your world that need justice and mercy. If we want to act like Jesus acted, in this case, fighting for justice, we have to feel what Jesus felt. Irritation, anger, even a controlled rage. Now, now I realize that we're flying quickly through several very thick and very interesting ideas. And that's the way it needs to be today because I want to save ample time uh, for participating together uh, in communion. And what I'm trying to do today is I'm trying to lay these concepts out in front of us. And I'm hoping that you, through personal, uh, inter- personal reflection and, and through community interaction, I'm hoping that you'll take these concepts and apply them to your lives. We've seen that the Bible calls us to this emotional generosity. We've seen that the Bible, uh, at least in Ephesians 4 and in Jesus' life, gives us these two examples of emotional generosity. But I want to end and conclude with this third point of two steps towards emotional generosity. If you're at all like me, you're great at feeling sorry for yourself, and you're great at sinning with your anger, if you're like me. But how do you and I, how do we move towards this emotional generosity? How do we move towards this place where we increasingly feel sorry for others? And as the motivation, uh, we, we are driven to them to meet their needs. How do you and I increasingly feel angry over injustice and oppression? And again, are compelled into action. We're gonna talk about two steps, two ideas. Two steps to growing in emotional generosity. Step one, this will be on the screen. We have to see others more and ourselves less. We have to see others more and ourselves less. So as I said, uh, when the, the splagnon root is used as a verb in the Bible, Jesus is the one doing the splagnoning every time. And so in the majority of those stories, I think like 85% of them, the text specifically says that before Jesus felt anything, he saw something. In Luke 10, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Jesus figure in that parable is the Samaritan who, verse 33, came to where the half-dead man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Do you remember that there are other characters in that parable? Do you remember what they did when they saw the man lying in the road? They went to the other side. They didn't want to run the risk of actually seeing the man and having their bowels soften. They had things to do. In Luke 7, with the widow we read, uh, and then, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. I could go on and on, but over and over in Jesus' life, seeing leads to compassion, compassion leads to mercy. I know for me, my eyes, both figurative and real, are way too focused on me and my plan and my stuff and my opportunities and my pain and my losses and my sorrows and my dangers. A step that I can take towards emotional generosity is taking my eyes off of me and putting them on to other people. I've told you the story before of a well-to-do friend who had just purchased a very expensive car. Another friend asked him if he had thought of a fourth friend who was trying to build a ministry for, for oppressed and disadvantaged inner city children. He's like, did you think about our friend and those children when you bought that car? And there's nothing inherently wrong with buying the car, but there's something terribly wrong with what he answered. He said, quote, you idiot. 
You can't think about disadvantaged kids if you want to buy a car like this. In other words, you can't see others' poverty and distress if you want to see this car in your garage. You can't do both. It's one or the other. Every time Jesus' bowels were softened, it's because his eyes saw a need. And his feelings compelled him to meet their needs instead of his own. That's compassion. What about anger? In all three stories in the Bible where it says Jesus is angry, guess what it says he did first? He looked. He saw his disciples keeping children away, Mark 10, 14, and he experienced indignation. He looked at the Pharisees with the hard hearts, Mark 3, 5, and he got angry. He saw Mary weeping, John eleven thirty three, 33, and he was deeply moved in his spirit. In the life of love, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look at the world. And where we see need and distress, we're affected at the deepest level and we act. And where we see oppression and injustice, we allow our anger to compel us into the fray. Last thought on this subpoint. Some of you are really going to resonate with this. Some of you are not going to understand at all what I'm saying. For the sake of time, I'm going to say it. I'm going to leave it. You can pick it up and run with it or you can drop it. I was recently talking to a close friend of mine. I was talking about the emotional anxiety that, that I feel in my life. And we were talking about this emotional anxiety that I experience. And my friend said this, until you see the world through your eyes, instead of seeing yourself through the world's eyes, you're gonna feel pressure and anxiety. Until you see the world through your eyes and stop seeing yourself through the world's eyes, you're gonna experience pressure and anxiety. He noticed this tendency in me to interact with people wondering what those people were thinking of me instead of seeing those people. And he said, until you see the world through your eyes instead of see you through the world's eyes, anxiety. For me and maybe for you, part of why I struggle to see need and injustice in my world is because I'm overwhelmed by seeing myself through everybody else's eyes. This can be worked out a thousand different ways, but do not miss the point. Emotional generosity starts with seeing. It starts with focusing on realities outside of ourselves and outside of our agenda. And so finally for this morning, the second step to emotional generosity is this. It's on the screen. We have to see God's love for us more. The only way to see the world more is to realize and believe that God sees us and that God loves us. We talked about this last week. I want you to look again at Ephesians 5, 1 to 2 with me. Be imitators of God. If you feel this way, you're imitating God. God in his triune reality and God in the flesh. And then he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Imitate God not to become a child, but as a beloved child. Love, not to get love because you've radically been loved. We've talked about so many beautiful episodes in the life of Jesus, episodes of beauty and righteousness, uh, just incredible humility and love. And what we have to see also with that is that Jesus, after living that life, gave himself up on the cross as a sacrifice to God. Chapter 5, verse 2 so that God could love us and enjoy us and see us as beautiful and righteous children. 
At the cross of Jesus, God turns his face away from Jesus so that he can set his affections and his face and his eyes and his compassion and his grace upon us. At the cross of Jesus, God got angry over our injustice and our oppression and our lack of compassion. He got angry with Jesus, the one who was never unjust, the one who never oppressed, the one who always loved. Until we see that God sees us and loves us like Jesus by sheer grace, we will never be able to take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on to other people. Said another way, to the extent that we see that God delights in us, to that extent, we will be free from the anxiety of seeing ourselves through the eyes of the world. And we will be free to see the lives, the hearts, the relationships, the realities of other people. Close the sermon this way. Get get your worship folder back out. Look at the call to worship. Look at 1 John 3. So we already saw that there's a deeper issue um, the, 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 a deeper issue when we don't share our worldly goods is the issue that we've closed off our hearts, we've closed off our bowels, we've, we've closed off our affections. But John says there's an even deeper issue than that. I think this is verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, I realize there's a a very sobering aspect to this verse. But at the same time, I'd rather focus on the clear teaching of this verse. Acts of mercy flow from compassion. Compassion flows from an open heart. An open heart is the result of God's love abiding in us. John is teaching us that the life of emotional generosity flows from a heart that is alive and well, from a heart that is feasting on the love of God for them. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. Jesus, we, we thank you for you uh, teaching us this morning even more about the life of love. We, in a very real sense, thank you that the life of love is so demanding we could never do it. And this, in fact, forces us to you to see that you have done it and you died for us in our place. We thank you, Jesus, that you were never self-seeking, never self-promoting, never self-defending, never self-advancing, always loving and serving and giving life to others. We thank you that you died for us. Holy Spirit, would you help us to feast on the love of God that has been poured into our hearts by you, would you help us to center ourselves on the affection of God the Father for us, that we might be released from living our lives for ourselves and empowered to live a life for others. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.